0: Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another Espresso Shots episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning how to break into the world of metabolic research and cell biology, then this is the episode for you because my next guest is an author, an associate professor at Brigham Young University, and a metabolic scientist who researches insulin resistance which he says is the root cause of many chronic illnesses like cancer, Alzheimer's, and diabetes. But before I introduce you to Dr. Benjamin Bickman, who's also the author of the book, Why We Get Sick, The Hidden Epidemic at the Root of Most Chronic Disease, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's newsletter that features career advice and job-seeking tips, as well as unique insights into dozens of different industries from the professionals who are actually working in them. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time4coffee.org and the sign-up box is right there. Now, my research and health-obsessed organic coffee lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage Cause it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Dr. Benjamin Bickman, an associate professor of physiology and developmental biology at BYU. Dr. Bickman is also a renowned metabolic research scientist who's contributed to dozens of academic journals and has presented at numerous professional talks focusing on insulin resistance, and how the body can actually prevent chronic illnesses. In the spring of 2020, he co-founded Insulin HQ, a coaching service designed to help reverse type 2 diabetes and other chronic diseases by reversing a person's insulin resistance. He's also co-founded another company called Health Code, which sells nutritionally complete shakes. Dr. Bickman, Benjamin, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to
1: go? I'm ready to go. Yeah, all the time. Thanks so much for that warm introduction. Please call me Ben. I'm looking forward to this.
0: Oh, thank you so much. And I have to ask you, from a scientific standpoint, what's your feeling about caffeine and Uh, how it affects the body?
1: yeah, Yeah, well, that's a really great question. Yes, so caffeine is the most widely consumed stimulant or drug on the planet, and its metabolic effects are interesting. We always look at them at caffeine through the lens of the central nervous system and what it does to the brain. It is a very, very mild stimulant, but it does delay fatigue. It does delay tiredness in the brain. Now, metabolically speaking, that's what's happening throughout the rest of the body. One, caffeine does induce what's called lipolysis. It tells our fat cells to start breaking down stored fat. And that is why athletes will use it and will use caffeine for endurance events because it just helps move their fat around to be burned a little better. But there's a trade off there, speaking of insulin, and that is that caffeine will acutely make the body a little more insulin resistant. And so the body has to work a little harder for the insulin to work. So it's not all roses when it comes to caffeine, so there's some good like the enhanced fat burning, but there's some bad um, like the acute insulin resistance. And so my only takeaway would be insofar as a person can, don't consume caffeine with sugar. If it's possible, I know it's hard to not put some in, but the less you have in there, the better, because the caffeine will make you a little insulin resistant. And that means any sugar you're putting in the body that turns to glucose, the body's just going to have to work about 20% harder, the insulin will, in order to try to clear that glucose from the blood. I know that's pretty granular, pretty specific response, but that's the way it is.
0: Well, I love to take my coffee with grass-fed ghee. Oh, nice. And there is an excellent non-dairy creamer I'm not (laughs) uh, getting sponsorship, I'm not affiliated with, called Laird. Laird is the first name of a very well-known professional surfer. And it actually has some mushrooms in it and Mm -hmm. coconut milk and zero sugar. So I'm with you. Don't put sugar in your coffee. You're going to ruin it. But thank you so much for that 101. And speaking of 101, before we dive into the 10 espresso shots, what is metabolic research? Could you give us a little bit of an overview and what your area of research on insulin resistance means? What is insulin resistance?
1: Yeah, so metabolic research is a very broad area that essentially can encompass any biochemical process within a cell that is involved in building up things in the cell or breaking things down. That is what metabolism means. Metabolism is the sum of these two contrasting processes within a cell. Anabolic reactions, which are the process of taking simpler molecules and forming something more complex from them, that is anabolic. And that being contrasted and balanced with catabolic reactions or catabolism which is when you're taking a big molecule and then you're breaking it down into its component parts. Both of these must happen for a cell to be viable and healthy and for the body to be healthy by extension. And the sum of those two processes, catabolism and anabolism, is metabolism in general. Now, central to these processes is the hormone insulin. The theme of insulin throughout the body, because insulin does have an effect on literally every single cell in the body, The theme of it is to tell cells what to do with energy. And insulin wants cells to make things. It doesn't want cells to break things down. Now, that is neither good nor bad in and of itself. It's only a problem when we have too much insulin and insulin isn't working the same way it used to and therein is the definition of insulin resistance it is two things it is a coin with two sides on one side we have the phenomenon that insulin isn't quite working the same way that it used to some cells are resistant to it not all but some on the other side of the coin is this phenomenon again that always comes with it which is that blood insulin levels the hormone insulin in our blood is several times higher all the time than it used to be we've lived a life that has simply pushed this insulin up to a new normal, but it's not a healthy place to be.
0: Okay. I always thought that insulin was equivalent to like sugar. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah. A lot of people think that and not without some justification. So insulin, one of its main actions, but certainly its most famous is how it controls blood sugar or blood glucose levels. So when we eat a starchy, sugary meal, that gets converted into glucose. It's simplest kind of constituent part. And then blood glucose levels will rise in the blood. We have that glucose will go up. That's unhealthy and potentially dangerous. If the glucose stays too high for too long, we could literally die from it. And so insulin will then be released because one of its main actions, indeed it's most famous, is to push that glucose back down And it does so by essentially opening doors on our muscle cells and our fat cells. So insulin, essentially, when it senses the high glucose, the little gland called the pancreas underneath the stomach will say, hey, we have really high glucose. We can't keep it this way. Insulin, go out and save the body. So insulin will go to the muscle cells and the fat cells, knock on the doors, open the doors to these cells to allow the glucose to come rushing in. The glucose will then lower in the blood. And now insulin, having done its main job, or again, most famous job, retreats back into the background and goes back to its lower levels as well. But as I've attempted to make clear, that is insulin's most famous action, but it really sells insulin short because insulin has myriad effects that have nothing to do with glucose at, say, the blood vessels and ovaries in women and the hippocampus in the brain. And this is why insulin becomes so relevant to so many off-target or seemingly non-metabolic diseases.
0: Incredible. I can't wait to dig more into this. By the way, listeners, check out show notes to see if Dr. Bickman's main Time for Coffee interview has already dropped. That's where we're going to learn more about what he actually does as a cell biologist. Excellent. All right. First espresso shot. What entry-level jobs are available to young people who want to break into this field?
1: Yes. So when someone graduates with a degree in, say, the department that I'm in, uh, cell biology and physiology, the immediate job that someone could get is working at a research lab. So, say, uh, more and more there are labs that specialize in the development of drugs, you know, small drug development companies, biotechnology, and then genetics labs. For example, there are several here in Utah that I know that I've had students go work at. So, that's generally what someone does right out of an undergraduate degree. However, having said that, the vast majority of students in my department and similar departments use the degree as a stepping stone to a future degree. In other words, medical school, an MD program, or a PhD program. So this is kind of the degree that students don't go into it because of the job that comes right after that bachelor's degree. They use it simply as a springboard into their next degree. Not that you can't get a job, but those few that I mentioned at the front end would be the ones...
0: Terrific. Thank you so much. I actually recommend that students, even if they're super interested in whatever it was they majored in, and they will eventually need some kind of advanced degree, go out into the working world Mm -hmm. for a couple of years and just see if in fact you are still interested in this subject matter. And you can always go back to grad school, but we'll get to that question in just a minute. What is a useful, hard and soft skill that you look for, Ben, in the young people that you hire?
1: Yeah. So the hard skills actually are, because they're so granular, they're so specific in the form of lab techniques that I actually don't require that they come in with any of that. I teach them everything they need to learn. They learn in my lab doing it the way I want it done. Now, the less tangible are, frankly, the single most relevant one for me is a a student who can work independently. There are numerous attributes that any manager or boss would prize. I have found with my management style, which is very hands-off, I do not like, I don't want to be the kind of guy who's watching if the students are Checking in and out of the lab when they say they're going to. I don't monitor their comings and goings. That's just not my style. I just like people who can discuss what needs to get done and then they just get it done. And if there's nothing to do, then don't come into the lab and go play Ultimate Frisbee. But if there's something to be done, then get in and get it done and then just let me know when it's done. So for me, it is the ability of a student to work independently. Now, there's a lot that goes into that. And so I'm being deliberate and expressing it that way, because that's also a student who's very ambitious. They have to have a drive because they know, all right, if I work well, then I'm going to get listed as a co-author on a future published manuscript. And that's going to make it even easier for me to get into my MD program or, you know, or something similar. But if they can work independently and there are a lot of other variables that will play into that characteristic or attribute, then they are going to thrive in the way I, in my lab and others like.
0: Fantastic. Is another way of putting that, that they're a self-starter?
1: Oh yeah. Yeah, that's right. Okay,
0: cool. So is someone's major a deciding factor to get into your field? In other words, if they haven't studied physiology or cell biology or genetics, is it a deal breaker?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. If they didn't have those courses as a background, they would have to remediate. So if they got into, say, a master's program in my field or a PhD, because most students' master's programs are kind of dying. But if they got into a PhD program, well, you wouldn't get into the PhD program. Almost every PhD program, mine included, requires that a student have some competency in those areas, because otherwise you're wasting a year or two on the student while they remediate and get that foundational work. Yeah, so this is the kind of field that is built on such fundamental ideas and knowledge that you cannot make up for it. Now, having said that, because you'd asked about a specific major, I've had students who were, say, a Spanish major. I had a Mandarin Chinese major working in my lab, and that these are students, they have an interest that lies outside of the strict field of, say, cell biology, and so maybe they're in engineering or they're in a humanities degree, but they know they need to check some boxes, And so they end up taking these relevant courses that don't fit their major, you know, taking cell biology in no way checks a box for a Mandarin Chinese major, a language major, but even still they know that, all right, I'm just going to have to find time in my schedule for these other courses that while not related to my major are related to what I want to do in the future. And so they have to get it done now. I actually like that. I like seeing students who have an interest that is in, in say, a language or humanities or engineering, something that is not explicitly related to cell biology, in fact, not even related at all, but they just want to be more well-rounded. I like to see that. That's very much something I espouse, which is this idea of being a Renaissance man or woman, being very well-rounded and having interests that lay outside and sometimes very far outside the field that we're actually working in.
0: Well, I'm relieved to hear that because I also studied Mandarin Chinese ah. in, in college. And I only wish that I had had the opportunity to take a cell biology class from you because I am now super interested in the way that the mitochondria work and just the the way that our bodies function because we are the most unbelievable machines yep. that are out there. It's just fascinating. So, few. All right. You have alluded to this now on a couple of occasions, but how important is it to have a graduate degree in order to succeed in your field, Ben? And if so, we know it is, but what are the most useful grad school degrees to have?
1: Yeah. So in my field, because I am a research scientist, it is essential. I don't know that there'd ever be a situation where a person excelled or was even hired as a research scientist or a principal investigator, it's called, where you're running your own lab without having a PhD. So I would say it's essential to have a graduate degree. Now, the theme of it would be, so if someone were going into my field and we're studying, for lack of a better description, just metabolism, that could cover quite a range. You could have on one end, a very applied version of the degree, which would be something like physiology, which is the study of organs within a complex system. And on the other, you could have a very granular degree in, say, PhD in biochemistry. And then in there, falling in that on that spectrum would be other degrees like a PhD in cell biology or a PhD in molecular biology. And there are so many different names, but they're all reflective of a focus on the way the cell is working. Even the physiologist on this far end of the spectrum where I'm saying that's kind of the more applied or more holistic view or version of this kind of degree. Even physiologists are more and more actually just cell biologists. You know, if you have a guy who's a... I have A colleague who's a muscle physiologist. He studies muscle tissue, but in reality, he studies muscle cells. And so, you have to, whatever the degree is, it's going to somehow come back to the function of a cell. And if that's the person's graduate work, then they're going to be well suited to, you know, step into this area of metabolic research.
0: Wonderful. What about? life experiences, Ben, what in your experience are the most useful out-of-the-classroom experiences for aspiring cell biologists, researchers, physiologists to try to cultivate that might give them a leg up on others who want to break into the field?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. In fact, I think it's something you alluded to a moment ago where you'd mentioned how you studied Mandarin, but boy, your interests have really blossomed. I think one, you have to really, I hate to say this because it's so cliche, you have to really have a fire and a curiosity. Maybe that's how I'll say it to be a little more scientific. You have to have a strong curiosity for something. That's certainly how it started with me. And I won't elaborate at this. We can I think it'll come up later, but you have to have a drive but a, a precise drive you have to have a drive to understand something that you didn't understand before that's curiosity in another way of saying it but the curiosity if it's going to be somehow be based on something relevant to cell biology then that is going to push you through and having the patience and the motivation to get the work done because it is patience. I like to joke, a lot of people say, oh, you have a PhD, you must be so smart. And I'm very quick to correct them. And it's not intended to be self-deprecating, but no, a PhD is in no way inherently smarter, someone with a PhD, than someone who doesn't. Not even a little. In fact, I would love and respect and nod to the argument saying, oh, you actually are less smart than someone who doesn't have. You know, what I, I, there's no difference in intelligence. I'm utterly convinced. It really is just a combination of you have a topic that you're interested in enough to pursue it for several more years and then maybe forever of, throughout your professional life, and you have the patience to get through it. Those are the two items that are really going to determine your success in, well, your interest in pursuing a PhD program and then actually successfully completing it. You have to have a topic or something you're so curious about that you want to learn more and you have to have the patience to get through it because it can be a slog. It can be a very exhausting process.
0: I have no doubt. And perhaps would you agree that another way of looking at the word patience is to say you have to have grit.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's a good word. Yeah.
0: Grit applies to so much in life. And I do love the idea of patience as well. So I'm sure we could have a very long conversation on this topic, but just very quickly, what is the best part for you of being in this profession, Ben?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So there are one, uh, maybe a vague answer than a precise answer. The vague one is that I love that I get paid to be curious. I mean, what a neat job that like, for example, this spring, summer, I don't teach and, and my schedule is incredibly flexible where I come and go as I want. My schedule is how I want it to be. And what I can do then, because I don't want to waste my time and do nothing, I can sit in my office, look out my window at this beautiful view and ask myself a question. For example, how does insulin affect fertility in women? Or how does insulin affect polycystic ovary syndrome? And, and I won't get into the specifics now, but I can do nothing more for the next four hours than start digging through the literature to find an answer to that question. So I love that I get paid to be curious and to find answers to questions. That's a fun cool job. And then on the very precise end or a precise version of that answer, but relevant or derivative of the first, I love sharing answers to questions in the form of formal scientific talks or podcasts and publishing scientific manuscripts. I like being able to contribute to the body of knowledge and to what we know about metabolism and hopefully have that be in some way applied to help someone have a better life.
0: That's what it's all about. That is wonderful. Very inspirational. And the flip side for you, because every job have or has aspects that are not so fun. What is the part for you of your current job, Ben, that sucks the most?
1: Yeah. So it's so funny that someone, I wish I could remember who said this. It's a very clever expression, but it was something like the politics in academia are so severe because the consequences are so irrelevant. You know, it's like we in academia are so, what we do has so little bearing on the world so often. I'd like to think that my research has a little more relevance because it's obesity and diabetes, but it's probably just my ego. So that's one negative thing that there are always their politics are involved in every job and academia is no different. Academia with a a very clear hierarchy and professors have different ranks and you have to kind of play the game to move up through the ranks. And then at the risk of being very offensive to the audience, sometimes dealing with the undergraduates is really frustrating. And I know that's bad business. I was joking with a colleague that it's bad business if you don't Like your customers, you know, and then the students are kind of the customers. But I mean, it really, I'm stating that as if it's a negative. I love the energy that comes from these students. I I really do. That's not just a, a platitude. I love being around these young, kind of 20 year olds. There's an energy to it, but I hate when it comes to an entitled, groveling, or demanding more and more is the case for. Points in a higher grade or similar. There's never a lack of that kind of thing. And my tolerance for it is getting smaller every year.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I can definitely appreciate that. By the way, I want to apologize to you and our listeners. My next door neighbor is doing some construction. So you may be hearing a saw. That's what's going on. I wish I could tell them to stop, but you know, I can't. Three final espresso shots. What is the best career advice? you've ever gotten, Ben?
1: What a great question. So this wasn't given as career advice. It was given as life advice. This is as I was moving out of the home to go. I graduated from high school and I was going to live in Russia for two years to do missionary service. And my dad had said to me, Ben, take your duties seriously, but not yourself. And as I have thought about that in the ensuing 25 years, I have been struck at how relevant that is to so many areas, including my profession, which is to say, if you have a job to do, roll up your sleeves and get it done. But in the midst of getting that done, you are a flawed individual. Um, The people that you work with will be flawed individuals, meaning we will all make mistakes. Learn to laugh at these mistakes. Don't criticize them. Don't condemn them. That isn't to say you can't correct them, but acknowledge that there is There's humor and there's lightheartedness that can be found in the foibles that we all have. So while we are all working to do the jobs we've been given, let's acknowledge that we're all flawed and that there are moments in life that warrant and will be better passed by laughing and welcoming people into your laughter. That's my advice.
0: I absolutely love that. And of course, as you were sharing that fantastic advice from your dad, they decided not only to have the buzz saw but the hammering. So again, apologies. I actually can't hear anything. <laughs> oh, you can't? Okay. Well, I think through my headphones, it's a little more sensitive. It's also right outside my window. Yeah,
1: you're feeling it.
0: I am feeling it. So- What movies, if any, or Netflix, Amazon, Hulu streaming shows or books do you think accurately depict this profession, Ben?
1: Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So we have a profession that is, well, nowadays it's famous because everyone's claiming to believe in science and now everyone loves people with PhDs. While oddly enough, I have, this is not answering your question, but I just have to say it. I have to say, because I kind of started the thought, we should never say we believe in science. Science is a constant effort to prove a theory false. So you should never believe. Even a a true scientist should be the most skeptical of his or her own data. So never say we believe in science. It's always, what are we trying to prove false today? So this isn't a career where there, I don't, I can't speak to any movie. I don't know of any movie that would reflect the life of a scientist, at least that I'm aware of. And I probably wouldn't care to watch it because that's not my kind of genre. I like action. You know, give me Jason Bourne rather than, you know, Anthony. I love those movies. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Any book that I like is simply going to be a book written, with a scientific bend. Now, that doesn't have to mean it comes from a PhD. I would encourage anyone, this will be relevant somewhat to our topic and discussion, but read any book by a science author called Gary Taubes. And he doesn't have a PhD. He's just a very smart man who's very eloquent. And then, you know what? Get his book, Good Calories, Bad Calories. I'd say that's the single most enjoyable book someone's going to read about human metabolism. And it's written by a journalist, not a scientist.
0: Well, as a former journalist, uh, yeah, that sounds great. Final espresso shot. What would Java junkies be surprised to learn about your profession?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I doubt there would be too many surprises. Maybe, you know what, I'll I'll give one though. I would say a research scientist, because that's the role I'm playing in this interview. It's my role as a research scientist. If someone goes into this field, gets a PhD and wants to be a PI or a principal investigator of a lab and be a scientist, then I would say find an opportunity to teach undergraduates in some way, because when you can tell a difference at scientific meetings, when scientists are up talking and, and gleefully sharing their latest science with other scientists, you can tell who teaches and who doesn't. Because you can have some of the most remarkable scientists that are just brilliant and effective in finding answers to scientific questions and managing a lab, and yet they're terrible presenters. And even though the data they're presenting are remarkable and fascinating, you couldn't care less because the delivery is just so terrible. In contrast... And I don't mean for this to be self-congratulatory because I was forced into this role, but there's no question it has helped me. If a professor has had to teach undergraduates, he or she will be able to deliver a message in a much more engaging manner. And so I credit my ability, and I think this is true, my ability to speak well in public and to be engaging is because I have to entertain 150 20-year-olds for four hours a week, two hours at a time. And so I like to joke that I'm constantly trying to compete with Instagram, that as a student is sitting in my lecture, they are going to be tempted at any moment, am I paying attention to Professor Bickman or am I flipping through my phone on Instagram or going over to, to some other social media platform? And so I I joke that I need to have such an engaging manner that the way I'm speaking and the way, like the way I'm changing my voice, my intonation, my accenting, emphasizing certain words. Indeed, even the the images that I have, if I'm using a lecture, like a screen for my lecture, I say that my lectures, the screen, the PowerPoint talk, is essentially the pictures of a story. And so I'll have big, bold images with very few words. And then the words are coming from me. So I'm telling the story. And this is just the picture that's going along with this picture book. So I've kind of gotten a little off topic. But my point is, don't underestimate the value that comes from being forced to teach a course to undergraduates in particular, who need to be a little more entertained while they are getting education. So those are the two E's, I think, of an effective professor and even presenter, and maybe even scientist, which is you have to be Provide education, but do so in an entertaining way. Now, that doesn't mean I'm like a clown, a circus clown with a big red nose and a silly bow tie, but you have to entertain the students in a way that they want to pay attention.
0: I love that point. I don't think you went off track at all. I think that would be surprising, especially for somebody who thinks they're going to be in a lab at the Mm -hmm. bench all day long. You still have to communicate your findings. You have to be able to do so both verbally at conferences and also in written form. So you need to make your findings resonate and interesting to the public or good luck. They could be buried under thousands upon thousands upon thousands of other documents. So I think that's an excellent point. Dr. Benjamin Bickman is the author of the relatively new book came out in the summer of 2020 entitled Why We Get Sick, The Hidden Epidemic at the Root of Most Chronic Disease. He is also the co-founder of Insulin HQ. It's a coaching service designed to help Reverse type two diabetes and other chronic diseases, as well as being the co-founder of another company called Health Code, and it sells nutritionally complete shakes. We'll have links to everything in our show notes. Ben, I want to thank you so much for making time for an insulin-free—I don't know if I can say that—but whatever it is, <laughs> a coffee today with me and the T4C community. This was just wonderful.
1: My pleasure. Thanks so much.